Welcome to AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get support and guidance through the chaos of parenting. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I have the honor of sharing with you an interview that I had with John Hirschfield. If you haven't heard of him, he is the director of the OCD and Anxiety Center of Greater Baltimore, but he's also a frequent speaker at the International OCD Foundation, and he's the author of some of my favorite OCD books. He is the author of his most recent book, which is Overcoming Harm OCD. He's also written Everyday Mindfulness for OCD and the Mindfulness Workbook for OCD, and one of my favorite books, When a Family Member Has OCD. He offers a lot of good input on harm OCD and OCD in general. So without further ado, here's my interview with John. All right. Well, I want to welcome John Hirschfield to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So I want to get all into harm OCD. I know you just wrote this book, Overcoming Harm OCD, which is very meaty and has some really good information. Before we dive into it, could you give um, my listeners a little bit of information and background on you and your work? Yeah, so I'm a uh, licensed marriage and family therapist. I run a, a small outpatient clinic in Hunt Valley, Maryland, about half an hour north of Baltimore. And um, all we do is treat OCD, cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention. And um, I like to include a lot of mindfulness work in there as well. And um, uh, what else? All I've ever treated is OCD. So I'm kind of you know niche performer here. There's a lot of things I don't know how to do, but the things that... Uh, um, that we really get to, to get into here. It's the OCD, anxiety, and related disorders. Um, I've written a few books. Um, it started with the, uh, my involvement in the Mindfulness Workbook for OCD, and then later I wrote When a Family Member Has OCD. And then um, uh, last year saw uh, Everyday Mindfulness for OCD, which I co-wrote with uh, Shala Nicely, came out. And then just recently, just last week, Overcoming Harm OCD came out. So yeah, perfect. That's me. Yeah. Yeah. And OCD is a huge topic in and of itself. So I think, you know, it's, it's a big niche and harm OCD in my practice. And even like with the parents that reach out from, you know, listening to the podcast, harm OCD seems to scare people the most. I think it's, it seems to scare parents the most. It's to me, it seems like one of the most misunderstood OCD themes out there. Yeah. So Let's maybe just start with explaining to people, to parents, what harm OCD is. Yeah, well, we don't really have an actual definition for harm OCD in the sense that there's some separate diagnostic terminology that says, like, well, this is this kind of OCD and this is that kind of OCD. A lot of that is pretty much just made up either uh, in, in online support communities um, or, uh, you know, uh, professionals, you know, myself included, to kind of use it for marketing, like, oh, I treat this kind of OCD and that kind of OCD. OCD is unwanted intrusive thoughts and uh, sort of relentless, repetitive, uh, compulsive physical and mental rituals in response to those thoughts. And the disorder is, of course, getting uh, sort of uh, stuck in that loop so that it impairs your functioning, where you're trying to get certainty that your unwanted thoughts won't come true. And the more you try, the more stuck you feel uh, that there's more you have to do to kind of get that click to feel like it's good enough. And it it kind of goes into lots of different territories of existence. I like to tell my clients that, you know, really all obsessions 
come down to this one basic idea that a lack of vigilance on your part is going to result in some kind of identity annihilation. Like because I didn't check or because I didn't wash or because I didn't like carefully examine this thought, some event's going to occur and it's going to ruin my life. It's going to ruin my life story. I'm going to hurt somebody. I'm going to change sexual orientations. You know, whatever your identity is wrapped up in, that's what you're trying to protect. And and one category that comes up a lot is what they sometimes call aggressive obsessions or violent obsessions. And that's what harm OCD usually refers to. So it's an, it's uh, obsessions related to um, either being responsible for harming somebody else uh, or fear of harming yourself, uh, or in some cases, a more like a moral morally themed harm that uh, I'm an inherently bad person, I have harmful thoughts, or I've somehow made the world a, a less safe or less happy place because of my inherent harmfulness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's normally when they come into my practice is they think they're suicidal. You know, I think that's a big one that I see, but they're so disturbed by it and they have so many compulsions around it. And, and parents don't really recognize that as OCD. Yeah. Yeah. And with kids, with kids, it's especially challenging because, well, first they have the same obsessions as adults when it comes to harm OCD. And it's a little bit jarring because, you know, a nine-year-old tells you, I have this intrusive thought of, you know, coming into mommy's room at night and stabbing her or something like that. That's going to send off a lot of red flags for somebody who doesn't know anything about OCD. It's going to really be hard to process and understand unless you already kind of have a sense that you have a kid who experiences unwanted thoughts. Um, and then with the self-harm stuff, it's the same sort of thing, maybe even scarier to some extent for parents because, you know, age eight or nine or 10, certain parts of the brain are starting to come online. They're starting, starting to see things in movies. If you watch any Disney movie, it usually starts with like a parent dying and, right. and somebody being overly distraught, you know, and not wanting to live. And so these ideas about living and not living are starting to seep in. And, you know, a susceptible kid with OCD might think, well, okay, I'm just like sitting here in school and we're in art class and we have these scissors. What's to stop me? What's to stop me from just picking up those scissors and hurting myself right now? And maybe they heard about somebody doing something like that once, or maybe they didn't. A thought just popped into their head. And then immediately they get this wave of anxiety of, what do you mean you don't know if you would ever do that? You have to know that you would never do that. So they start asking for reassurance or uh, they start just getting very uncomfortable and avoidant. Maybe they don't want to be in art class anymore. A lot sort of happens behind the scenes before the parents pick up on there even being an anxiety issue sometimes. It's like the kid just doesn't want to go to art class. Nobody knows why because he doesn't want to confess that when I'm in art class, I think about cutting myself with a pair of scissors because that sounds crazy. And even at like nine or 10, he knows like he doesn't want to be labeled that way. Right. So, um, so that's one common way to manifest. And as a clinician, you know, it's pretty scary for us too. If someone comes in and says, Hey, I'm having thoughts of hurting myself. You know, we get trained and trained and maybe even overtrained in mandated reporting. And you know, we have to cause a big scene every time somebody oh, said the magic words. Now we got to change everything we're doing and do an assessment. And of course you do need to assess for safety whenever somebody's talking about violence. But if you treat OCD, you hear these thoughts like on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So you start to get a sense of, okay, we're talking about an unwanted intrusive thought and a compulsive strategies for getting certainty about it, which is like literally the opposite of wanting to hurt yourself. It's like right. sort of in a sense, like the safest kid <laughs> that you right. could possibly be, see- <laughs> be seeing. Um, but the parents don't know that. 
you know, the parents are like, you know, what do you mean he's having thoughts of hurting himself or something like that? You know, is he unhappy? Well, well I mean, he's unhappy about having thoughts, but he's not generally unhappy usually. Right. Um, so those are interesting sort of territories to navigate. But, you know, when you're able to teach kids and adults how to uh, relate to their thoughts differently and how to kind of experience thoughts as thoughts instead of automatically tagging them as threats that you have to prove away, well, then you get to see people get better and lead happy lives. and. Some of that stuff persists, you know, you get these unwanted thoughts, that's part of life, everybody has unwanted thoughts. Sometimes you kind of forget about them, they go away, and sometimes they actually kind of just change into things that are interesting. So that kid might, um, that kid who's afraid of scissors in art class might actually become a really good artist that might draw some really interesting things, you know, as as a function of him being able to kind of recognize, okay, this gives me anxiety, this makes me uncomfortable, but I can use that, that's a creative power. Yeah, which I like that, you know, that outlet. So going back though, because I feel like the initial thing is how to help a parent differentiate, because I get this, I get this question all the time and definitely get them assessed. But then how do you, how do you help a parent differentiate what is OCD and what is true suicidal ideation? Yeah. Um, it's unfortunately not an exact science. I mean, as therapists, I think our own anxiety could use a little break and make it only if we're in you know, exact <laughs> science. Um, but OCD is not difficult to diagnose. I mean, you know, are these thoughts wanted or unwanted? You know, are, are these strategies for dealing with the thoughts, um, you know, certainty-seeking or safety-seeking strategies, or do they serve some other purpose? And you have to run a kind of differential diagnosis here. You know, it's, it's first of all, is there any history of committing acts of self-harm? Because that would be informative. Um, there's certain other disorders where self-harm plays a, a factor. What is the motivation for it, right? So um, you have a teen who's cutting. Um, you know, that's they may or may not also have OCD, but that cutting behavior is usually not associated with OCD. Their intention is to either uh, relieve some kind of, you know, emotional turmoil through the cutting or to, uh, in some cases, uh, get some kind of attention from somebody, uh, like a parent or something like that. And they're also having thoughts about cutting in addition to doing the cutting, but it's completely different, you know, totally egocentric. They're thinking about it like, this is a, essentially a good idea. This is something that needs to happen. Or if you had a kid, have a kid who's severely depressed and he's thinking that he'll get relief from harming himself or from committing suicide. That's a completely different dynamic than a kid who doesn't understand why he's having these thoughts. They're totally inconsistent with his identity, you know, and he's wanting to avoid being near a ledge because, you know, being near a ledge necessarily involves thoughts of jumping off of it. And he doesn't know how to handle being with those thoughts. So he just starts avoiding ledges. Yeah. And I think it's a good, it's a good way for parents to see that because I hear that all the time. Then how do you think harm OCD, well, we'll just call it harm OCD, you know, that harm, harm themed OCD yeah, sure. uh, hooks in parents, you know, how does it involve the parents? Well, uh, usually what you, I, I see it go in two different directions. One is where the kid really is being avoidant and refusing to talk to the parents and is not confessing the thoughts because the thoughts are so horrible and he's so afraid that the parents will, you know, ship him off somewhere, you know, you know lock him up somewhere. Uh, because he's so bad for having these bad thoughts. My kid would never have these thoughts. You know, you're disgusting to me. And so you see things that look a lot more like depression, just kind of isolation, avoidance. And it takes a while in therapy to tease out like, oh, this is really all grounded in this fear that if you 
sit next to your brother at the kitchen table, you're going to stab him with a fork. Um, the somewhat more common you know, version that I see is the direct opposite of that, where they're constantly confessing the thoughts. You know, mommy, did you, I need you to know that I had this thought. Does that make me a bad person? They're seeking reassurance. You know, I would never do that right. You know, tell me I would never do it. You know, say the magic words so that I know I would never do it. Or trying to get the parents to um, help them remove triggering objects, you know, making sure the knives are hidden away and, uh, you know, making the parent quickly change the channel for something triggering on the TV or something like that. So you'll, you'll see this kind of back and forth of collecting reassurance from the parents and also trying to control what the parents do that they might find triggering. Yeah, uh, like I said, I've seen it go in both directions. One where they like totally isolate, and the parents don't really understand what's going on, and that can cause a lot of disruption uh, further down the road. When the parents kind of discover, oh my gosh, all this time my poor kids been suffering, and I haven't been able to help. Uh, and then the other version of that one's constantly pulling information, confessing, reassurance seeking, and 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 to some extent sort of demanding that things go a certain way in the house, but without the parents really understanding why it has to be that way. Yeah. And ironically, the person, the, the child is getting all that reassurance. They actually get help a lot quicker and appropriate help because it's easier to, to notice and detect versus that, yeah. that brooding teenager who has all these intrusive thoughts. And then maybe inadvertently the parents like, are you depressed? And it, it feeds it because then they're like, oh my gosh, she even, she thinks I'm depressed, you know, yeah. so she's even worried about me. Well, especially with self-harm thoughts. Yeah. The, the idea that you're getting depressed is triggering because wait, mm-hmm. isn't, you know, isn't that what depressed people do? Don't they hurt themselves? You know, I read about this musician, he was depressed and he hurt himself. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah. So if they get into treatment, which would be amazing in and of itself, because I feel like for so many kids it's missed or they go to a therapist who doesn't really specialize in OCD and they do the assessment. And I've worked with a lot of kids who have had multiple therapists before I've seen them. And they have, you know, had crisis units called and, you know, safety plans developed because they're not safe and things that really help validate that intrusive thought. Mm-hmm. So um, by the time they come to an OCD therapist, hopefully they land on one, uh, the, the therapy and the intervention can be very odd, especially yeah. with harm OCD. So I wonder if we can maybe talk about that because I, I feel like sometimes I have to be a little bit of a salesman and be like, look, we're going we're gonna to do some pretty weird things here and yeah. this is how it's helpful. Um, I feel like it's important to add, you know, we're, we're here talking about kids and parents. You can imagine what it must be like for a parent with harm OCD who has intrusive thoughts about their children. True. And whether they might you know, harm them in the middle of the night or something like that. Um, and having to go through that same process of you know, authorities being called or suspicions being raised and that the kind of torture that that involves, the kind of like real psychological harm that could cause somebody who's kind of right on the edge of like, this can't be real, this must be OCD, but then to have it validated as you know, not OCD, but an actual danger, um, right. that's, that can be really traumatic for, for a parent as well. Um, so yeah, so the kids come in and you know, how do you sort of make this, how do you, how do you make this case that, you know, you've engaged in all these strategies to avoid the thoughts or make the thoughts go away and none of them have worked. And here, here's a crazy idea. Let's have the thoughts on purpose and see what happens. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, so naturally they're going to be skeptical of that. Um, like an adult client, 
you know, I try to remind them that, look, it's always the thing you haven't done yet that works because you've done all the things that you've done and they haven't worked. So whatever it is that's going to work is something you haven't done yet. So let's try, let's just try to think about what would be a different way of relating to it. And I get a lot of mileage out of explaining that, you know, I know you have OCD and you know you have OCD, even though you might be skeptical of it, uh, but your brain doesn't have any idea that you have OCD. You know, your brain is just watching your behavior and assuming everything you do is totally rational. And so it's forming conclusions based on this, right? So if you're around a knife and you have an unwanted thought and then you, you know, go into another room so that you're not around the knife, you, your brain is watching you do this and saying, well, yeah, that was a good decision. You know, you really could have hurt somebody if you had stayed in that room. And if you're doing this over and over and over again, you know, next time you're around a knife, your brain's going to be like, hey, you're not supposed to be around knives. So you got to get out of here. You know, it's just trying to help you out. It's just going based on what you're telling it. So if what you want is to be able to be in a room with a knife and not be thrown by those types of thoughts, well, you have to retrain the brain and you have to show it. Oh, you know, he sat in that room next to the knife. He had all these stabby thoughts and he kind of made a joke out of it or let himself feel anxious about it and uh, nothing happened and, you know, must be a glitch in the system, right? Next time he comes around a knife, same thing's going to be like, well, that's kind of uncomfortable, but the brain is going to be kind of helping him out saying, uh, yeah, you've done this before. It's okay. Yeah, you get weird around knives. I wouldn't worry about it. And it's just basing it on what your behavior is and not so much on what you're thinking or how anxious you are. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, sometimes I find people find, find that helpful. I, I also think it's very important to remind kids and adults and, and the parents um, that this really has to do with having a very a, a sort of a different kind of mind. It's like almost like a superpower but, you know, like any superpower, you have to kind of understand how to use it, how to control it, or it can kind of get, get out of hand. So I always just describe uh, the mind as this kind of spotlight that shines down on um, the, the library of your brain. So all the stuff that is shining there in the middle, that's stuff that's easy for you to understand. Like, oh, yeah, normal thought, like you know, today's Tuesday. And then the stuff off on the fringes is sort of in the darkness really cool, exciting, creative thoughts. And then on the other side, really scary, creepy thoughts, like what if I hurt myself or somebody else? And in this case, you know, because you have an OCD mind, you have a much wider spotlight than the average person. So on the upside, you're very funny. You know, you're very clever. You're very creative. And you see things that other people don't automatically see. And you can usually prompt these kids with a question like, you know, probably your teachers or somebody has probably said to you things like, how did you come up with that? And you were like, I don't know, just popped into my head, right? That's that same quality of like, why didn't it pop into everybody's head? Well, because you've got this cool mind that notices these things on the fringe. The problem is you also have to deal with the other side of the library. So these unwanted thoughts, they also get presented to you in this very kind of loud, obvious way. And you get confused. You get confused by the sort of brightness or loudness of the thought uh, into thinking that it must be very important because you had it. And then once you start responding that way, that's where things go downhill. So if you could learn to say like, okay, this is a function of kind of how creative I am and I get to enjoy all the positive parts of it. And now I'm in therapy so I can learn how to manage the scarier parts of it. So I don't get so confused that if a thought's very loud, it's very important. Yeah. And I like that spotlight analogy. Um, cause I think that's a good way to put it. It's a good visual for, normalizing it, you know, and realizing why there's so much, you know, on their radar and also, you know, the, the silver lining, the good qualities that come with kids and, and people in general who have OCD. Which yeah. These are people who love really deeply, who, you know, are kind of they explore areas of the mind that 
I think otherwise just sort of get lost. You could prompt anybody to come up with something really creative, but a lot of these kids with OCD, you don't need to prompt them because it just pops into the forefront of their mind. Yeah, that's so true. That is so true. My son has OCD and he is the most creative person I have ever met. And he's, you know, wants to be an inventor, you know, because he always has crazy ideas of why, why don't we have this in our world? <laughs> so, Right. And if he could understand that that's coming from the same mechanism that might give him an unwanted thought and then just be selective and like, well, here's the kind and amount of attention I'm going to give that unwanted thought right now. And here's the kind and amount of attention I'm going to give that wanted thought and just get some sense that he can have enough distance from both of them that he can see them clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think, a more uplifting, positive perspective. Yeah. And a lot of these kids are so down on themselves too, because they think they've failed as humans. Like, you know, uh, something's like wrong with them in the sense that uh, it would be a good person, except there's this, you know, hole in their head that makes these terrible thoughts come to the forefront of their mind and they're like defective merchandise or something. Yeah. And especially I think with harm OCD thoughts, because they're, they're dark, you know, and if they want, if they're having intrusive thoughts that they want to kill themselves, they feel guilty because they're like, I have, like the kids will tell me I have such a good life. I don't know why I'm having this thought, you know, or if they want to, they're worried they're going to hurt someone else. They feel like they're like this hidden monster. So I feel like the self-esteem is, you know, hit. Well, and, and part of that hit is this colossal sense of moral failure. Like you said, I have this great life. So how dare I have thoughts about hurting myself? How, how uh, disrespectful that is to my family to have those thoughts is how they tend to think. Or if they have these thoughts about hurting somebody that they love. It's the having of the thought is in and of itself considered, often considered a, a major moral failure, separate from whether or not they're going to keep the thought from coming true. You know, if they can suppress it enough, you know, maybe maybe they can live as a closeted serial killer or something like that, but people are eventually going to find out that's, you know, that's what they're afraid of. But if you're dealing with it on, on the moral front, just the, the sheer existence of the thought, it's hard for, it's hard for adults and it, it's harder for kids to make that distinction between, well, you can have a thought about doing something bad without being a bad person. It's right. totally normal to have thoughts about doing bad things. And an adult is more likely to be able to make that distinction. Not always, but, but more mm-hmm. than a kid. Yeah. And I think that's why it's good for parents to really understand harm OCD. And we'll talk about your book and and how that can help with that. Because if they don't understand it, they're going to give that response to that child. um, That's going to maybe inadvertently exasperate it. You know, like, because the parents will say to me, I don't know what's wrong with him. He has such a good life. Or, um, you know, I don't know why he's so depressed. Or when he comes and he says he wants to kill himself, you know, I brought him to the ER uh, or he says he wants to hurt us. I don't know. I thought I was a good mom. You know, so. Right. They, I must have made him angry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, a lot yeah. of these just like natural, rational responses to these irrational, intrusive thoughts. So yeah. let's talk about your book. What's in it and how it can help, you know, educate people on harm OCD. So this is, um, you know, really just an opportunity. I've just, I kept hearing over and over and over again, how, you know, how nobody was able to diagnose me as having OCD because I don't wash my hands a ton and I don't have an orderly room and stuff like that, that they associate with OCD. And, um, and the, and the harm OCD sufferers were just, they seem to be suffering at, at a high level. I mean, people with sexual obsessions also have a hard go of it and there's not a lot of material out there for them either. But I wanted to write a book about harm OCD because I just, you know, I like working with this population and it's kind of interesting work and, 
um, seeing them, uh, seeing people get better from harm OCD is just, it's so much fun because they, they learn to take themselves less seriously and they get to reclaim so much of their life that was lost to the OCD. Um, so this is a book, I mean, it, it's, it is geared towards adults. I mean, it's not written for children. Um, I think a teenager could certainly handle it, um, but it's definitely not a kid's OCD book. Uh, I think a parent with a kid who has OCD might learn a lot about it. And I cover a little bit of the dynamics in, in part of the book, just about what you might see with kids with harm OCD and kind of how to deal with that as a parent. Uh, but the bulk of the book is really about first just defining, you know, what are the mechanisms of OCD and how does it manifest as unwanted intrusive thoughts of harming yourself or harming others? And why do we have the violent thoughts in the first place in general without OCD? And then how does OCD sort of take that fact that we have violent thoughts and make it so difficult for us with OCD? Uh, and then I just break it down into um, four kind of subcategories of harm OCD, which is a fear of a harmful identity fear of impulsively harming others, fear of self-harm, which we've been talking about, and fear of harming children. Uh, and I've gotten a lot of uh, feedback from people online asking if I focus on what they call POCD or pedophile-themed obsessions. And I, and I don't, only because I really wanted to make this book just about violent thoughts. And I think those types of obsessions, even though they often involve violence and harm, deserve their own materials. So who knows, you know, maybe one day I'll get to it. <laughs> There's a lot of writing to do. Yeah. Um, uh, and, I, and I look at, you know, how, how it gets treated and I kind of break down um, very standard evidence-based CBT protocols, you know, exposure and response prevention, uh, treatment of OCD and how it would apply to each of these different kinds of harm OCD. And I break it down into, into, into cognitive therapy, exposure therapy, uh, mindfulness, skill development and self-compassion. Yeah. And I think it'd be really helpful for parents because, well, one, a lot of the parents I work with have their own OCD issues that come into play. So there's that. But two, I feel like more than any other issue that you have, that, that your child has, like you have to be a, a student of understanding OCD on a very deep level because it's irrational and you have to understand it in order to re respond in a, an appropriate way. And I think with harm thoughts, that's where I, I get the biggest struggle with the parents I work with, both online and offline, is just understanding how is this OCD, you know, and right. why holding a knife is a good idea, you know, and right. or, you know, why, you know, having these thoughts or making up these stories part of ERP, why is, why is that not cruel? So I think just studying it from a first, you know, reading it and learning about it can be invaluable. And even having just a resource for the therapists that listen to this show, like having a book that you can say to your parents before you start working with them, you know, read, read Overcoming Harm OCD. It will really give you a good snapshot on what it is and what I'm trying to do with your child. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I get, I get emails from people, you know, mostly adults who are uh, struggling with harm OCD and, and they want to go to a therapist, but they're just terrified that they're going to go to a therapist and they're just going to be taken away in a, you know, white coat. And, um, you know, I say, well, you know, find something that you think represents what you're going through online. You know, one of my blogs or now there's this whole book mm -hmm. and, and present that and say this, this right here, this is what I think is going on, you know, yeah. sort of help, help to set that frame early on. Um, and it can help right? normalize it because I yeah. think a lot of times the pushback that I get, which is definitely part of the OCD is, how do you know this is OCD? I mean, obviously that's one of those doubt things, you know, yeah. how do you know this is harm OCD? How, how do you know that maybe I'm not really going to hurt someone? And yeah. 
having, you know, well, there's a book all about it, you know? So that's a little validation. Yeah. And, and um, it's the best we got, right? Because you don't know in the right. end, right? You know, I mean, it's, that's, that's the thing is we, we, we can't say, well, now we have certainty. Like now, because I've called it OCD, I now have all the certainty that I'm never going to do the wrong thing. Um, because that's just buying back the exposure. You know, you're not actually getting the full benefit. The, the, the end game here is learning to live in a world where if you can think it, and it starts with the word maybe, you can acknowledge that it's objectively true without, you know, kind of turning your life upside down about it. Yeah. But a- any statement that starts with the word maybe is objectively true. I tell this to my clients all the time. Maybe the ceiling's going to fall on your head in the middle of the session. <laughs> that is an objectively true statement. Right now, it would be pretty weird if the way we responded to that was to go up and start pressing on the ceiling or call the architect or engage in some other kind of safety behavior. We just have to learn to live in a world where there's some possibility greater than zero that the ceiling will fall on our head. And it's because we don't want to live in a world where we have to always be outside in order to feel safe. Right. So we just we take that bet, you know, and that's yeah. really what it comes down to. Uh, and I see a lot of people struggle with, especially with harm OCD, with well, I have OCD, therefore my thoughts can't come true. And that's mm-hmm. not actually overcoming OCD. That's right. just compulsively relying on the reassurance of your diagnosis. But to actually overcome OCD, you have to learn how to, how to live in a world with uncertainty. Yeah. And I think with kids, it's so tricky because you have that psychoeducational component where like they legitimately don't know something, you know? Right. So you're like educating them. Like, yeah, there is this disorder and that's what it's called. And these are the themes that it can pop up with. And then you have to move away from that and be like, and you may or may not kill yourself someday. We don't know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And I like to express to the parents, especially, you know, if they're like a little bit confused or skeptical, um, you know, it's all contamination in the end, right? Some people wash their hands and your kid washes his mind. And that's really, right. right? These thoughts, which are normal events are being tagged as contaminants because, you know, they tend not to show up all day, every day in the forefront of your mind, but you know, due to a series of environmental, biological, and, you know, luck factors, this is what's happening in this particular person's mind. And, you know, you used that word irrational before. I mean, it is irrational to concern yourself with trying to be certain that you're not going to randomly commit suicide or hurt somebody. But at the core of it, there's nothing irrational about finding the thoughts, you know, displeasing or concerning, right? It's a very rational thing to want to feel confident that you're not going to hurt anyone or want to feel confident that you're not going to hurt yourself or want to feel confident that you're not going to get a disease or wake up a different sexual orientation. These are very normal things to want. Right. It's just that the way that you're going about getting that confidence is that's the irrational part is that you're actually striving for certainty and you're refusing to take anything other than certainty like confidence and so you're constantly sort of chipping away at your ability to overcome it by trying to prove that it won't happen instead of saying what someone without OCD might say, which is, well, that was disturbing, and then move mm-hmm. on. Right, exactly. Where can people find your work? I know it's all over Amazon, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wherever books are sold, they tell me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so Amazon's probably the easiest way, place to go. Um, I think it's on you know, Barnes & Noble and other places. Uh, yeah, and I think that your your last book before this one, um, when a family member has OCD, is is really good for parents too, and definitely a good starting point. I tell parents to read that all the time when I first meet them because I think it just explains OCD really well, and it it also highlights 
the collaboration and, you know, partnering with your child, not for your child. So I would highly recommend that as well. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed writing that book in, in particular because when I was writing it, it was kind of an interesting writing exercise because I was, you know, you think about your audience when you write a book and in most cases, um, so like with overcoming harm OCD, my audience is really my adult clients with harm OCD. Parents might benefit from reading it. Clinicians might benefit from reading it. But my audience is really a person with harm OCD. And with the family member workbook, I had two separate audiences I wanted to get at the same time. One was the family member who wants to learn about the OCD sufferer. But the other is the OCD sufferer who wants to know that the family member is learning the right things. So I wanted OCD sufferers to be able to read that book and go, uh, okay, they can read this, you know, because, <laughs> you know, because it's pretty scary to have somebody talk to your parent or loved one about OCD. And, you know, if they get it wrong, um, there's so much shame embedded in this. So to be able yeah. to say, uh, if they understand OCD the way it's written about in this book, then maybe they can understand me and I can talk about my OCD with a little bit less shame. Yeah. And that, that's, a, that's a tricky goal, I think. Yeah. To, to target, but, but you did it. Cause I think, it comes, <laughs> you, yeah. I think it comes across really well for, for either one. So definitely a really invaluable resource. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you spreading your wisdom and people can check out your books and definitely continue to get help that way. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. I think that's what you're doing with this podcast is great. I mean, there's a, it's so hard for, for parents of children with OCD to get accurate information about exposure therapy and OCD and how it's treated. They get a lot of mixed messages from a lot of different kinds of therapy um, that's out there. So to get the right information, I mean, it's just so huge. What I see time and time again are adults who didn't get the treatment that they could have gotten 10 years ago. And it was because nobody knew how to help them. So Yeah, and so unnecessary. So, well, thank you. Well, I hope you found that interview helpful. I really enjoyed hearing his insights on harm OCD and just OCD in general. I thought it was really cool how he talks about the superpowers and the strengths of people with OCD. I definitely see that with my own child. So I hope you got some good tips and approaches to work with your own kids. Definitely check out his books. If you have a child who has harm OCD or harm OCD thoughts, I would definitely recommend reading Overcoming Harm OCD. He talks about it like he's talking to the person who has it, but I think it'd be really insightful to really understand where your child is coming from and where your therapist is coming from who's trying to work with your child. And if you haven't read already, when a family member has OCD, check that out because he outlines a really good approach in general on how to partner with your child and work together to help them with their OCD. You can find all of that on Amazon, just, and I'll leave links below in the show notes so that you can easily access it. Well, I hope you enjoy my podcast. If you're enjoying my podcast, don't forget to hit a star on iTunes to show your support. There are stars under my podcast name. Just click one and you give back to the show. If you have a few minutes, you can leave a review and I greatly appreciate it. So I hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do, and I will talk to you next Tuesday. When I first discovered Natasha, I was in a desperate place with my son, and his anxiety was getting worse, and we had tried counseling, and it was not going well. Natasha gave us practical tools. She wasn't like the books that we had read that were, you know, you have three kids, but somehow you can magically spend 10 hours a day on your one anxious kid and just 
you know, life is great for the other two. She's helped me understand OCD on a level that no therapist I have come across seems to understand. Natasha had practical real-life advice that we started implementing the day that we listened to them. Not only did it help with our son's anxiety, it helped my husband and I recognize um, the anxiety that we had in our parenting that was actually contributing to our children's anxiety. Her tools are, I mean, life-changing. She has been amazing, and I'm so thankful for the work that she provides to all of us who have children um, who battle anxiety and OCD. It is so exciting to see him about a year later, just thriving in school. She really has guided us the whole way, and without her, our lives would be very different. We're very grateful. My husband and I are forever grateful to Natasha Daniels for helping us to figure out where to even start with anxiety. If you have a child with anxiety or OCD, she is your go-to woman. Parenting a child with anxiety is not easy, and sometimes it feels hopeless, and in a desperate time in my journey with my son, I started searching the internet and found Natasha Daniels. She has been a lifesaver. Her resources have given me hope, they've given me tools and support, and I, I highly recommend her and her resources. They are phenomenal, and they are some of the best resources you can find out there for anxiety and OCD. Parenting a child with anxiety and OCD can be a confusing and lonely journey. It can leave you feeling hopeless and overwhelmed, but it doesn't have to be that way. Join me this January as I begin a new adventure, forming a new community where I'll be walking with you, supporting you, and building your skills and confidence to help your child not only survive, but thrive. I will get to know you and your family on a deeper, more personal level. I'll be able to give you guidance based on your needs and your situation. I hope you'll join me in this next chapter and see where it can bring you and your family. We don't get to choose if our child has anxiety or OCD, but we can choose what we do about it. To learn more about the AT Parenting Community, go to anxioustoddlers.com forward slash community or get on the wait list to join by texting AT Parent with no space to 44222. Together we can do this. She's really good and I hope I'll be like her. I have had OCD for over five years. I have trained my brain and you can do the same thing.